0: Uh, Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the, of the earth have committed sexual immor- immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the uh, impurities in her sexual immor- immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the uh, mother of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for mind with wisdom. The seven has a seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the, uh, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain on a little while. As for the beast, there was and is not. destruction. and the ten horns that, that you saw, you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received lawyer power. but they uh, they receive authority as kings for one hour. together with uh, these are one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and children and faithful. And the angel said to me, "The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw." they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her um, desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their loyal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman so is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Amen. 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 Good morning, everyone.
1: Great to be with you here today. Hope you're doing okay. Let me pull up the slides. Here we go. Uh, and Thank you, Boram, for doing our reading today. So as you heard, this is probably a strange passage to many of us all about a prostitute. Uh, And so we're going to, again, have a question and answer time after the sermon. So if you have questions during the sermon, uh, you can use Zoom chat to send a message to Les, and he will collect the questions. And then after the sermon, he will lead a discussion for the Q&A time. But as we start the sermon, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. So imagine you're on a date. If you're single, you can just imagine this. If you're married, I guess you have to imagine back to when you were single. But imagine that you're on a date and you show up and the person you're on a date with seems absolutely perfect. They're incredibly attractive. They dress with a great sense of style. They have jewelry or accessories that show they've got money. They seem to really just enjoy life. And you know the best part of it all? They seem to genuinely want you to be part of their life. How would you feel landing someone like that? Pretty excited? Would anyone maybe be tempted to start looking up wedding venue availability on your phone when they got up to go to the bathroom? And maybe that's a little rushing things, but you'd be excited, right? There's this beautiful person and they seem to have a great life. They're fun to be around. They like having you around. That checks so many boxes. Now, would it change your feelings about this person if you learned that they were a prostitute? How about if you learned that they were incredibly violent during their free time? Now, I know that's a weird scenario, right? Like, Eric, we've always known you're a little weird, but this is weird even for you weird, right? So why do I start today's sermon outlining this hypothetical scenario? Well, it's because we're looking at the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 17 today. And today's passage tells us that this scenario is actually shockingly similar to a scenario that we all face every day of our lives on earth. And what we're going to see today is that the world promises us the good life, but it's a lie. And so we'll look at the prostitute in the passage, the prostitute in our world, and the prostitute in the end. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it feels weird and strange and maybe uncomfortable to us, God. We thank you that you speak to us and you tell us who you are, who we are in relation to, in relation to you, and how you call us to live. So I pray that you would be working in our hearts today as we look at your word and revealing your truth to us and helping us to be able to live in a way that honors you. And in Jesus' name, amen. So first up, the prostitute in the passage. As you heard in the scripture reading and probably picked up in the intro, today's passage is all about a prostitute. And I know you're all wondering, it, so let's just get it out of the way. Like a prostitute, really? Yes, a prostitute. Or if you're in older versions, like the King James Version, it it may be referred to as a whore. Now, is this a literal prostitute? No. Remember, symbolism is huge in Revelation, just like the dragon in chapter 12 and the beasts in chapter 13 weren't literal dragons and beasts. This is not a literal prostitute. Oh, so it's just a symbol or a picture, so that must mean it's not as shocking or terrible as it seems to be at first, right? Well, no. Remember, the whole point of symbolism is to help us reframe the way we see our world. It's to help us feel things, not just know them intellectually. So if someone comes up to you and they say, you know, there's something out there in the world. It's gonna be really appealing to you, but it's dangerous, so stay away. You're just sort of like, yeah, sure, whatever. But when someone says, look, watch out, there's a beautiful woman out to seduce you, but she's a prostitute and she's violent that clicks something emotional inside you. It makes warning bells ring in your head and your heart that wouldn't be ringing if you just had the bare facts and information in front of you. And in the world where revelation was written, people were constantly surrounded by images and symbols that helped them make sense of the world through Roman eyes, through the eyes of what it means to be a Roman, what it means to live according to the way that the Roman government wants us to live. And this happens in our world today, too. Like, why do so many countries have laws against burning or disrespecting their flags? It's just a piece of cloth, right? Well, no, it's a picture. It's a symbol. It carries with it the whole idea of what it means to belong to that country. If you see someone disrespecting your flag, they're not just messing with a piece of cloth. They're messing with you and what it means to be you. Pictures and symbols are powerful, they shape the way that we see and interpret the world. And John uses pictures and symbols throughout Revelation like the prostitute in this passage to help his original readers and us completely reframe the way we see the world. He's helping us to learn how to see the world according to God's perspective and a biblical perspective rather than Rome's perspective or the 21st century Hong Kong perspective. And we've seen this happening throughout the book already with horsemen and dragons and beasts and more. But here he uses a picture of a prostitute to do this work. So who is this prostitute and why is she called a prostitute? Well, in terms of who she is, the passage actually tells us directly. If you look at verse 18 from today's reading, it says, the woman that you saw is that he's telling us right here, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So in John's day, when Revelation was written, that's Rome. But it's not the government system operating in Rome, since that's the beast she's riding on, we'll see in a little bit. No, the prostitute is the parts of the culture and society that reach out to us, that promise us the good life, that try to seduce us. So the prostitute is things like economic prosperity that can clothe someone in the finest clothes and the best jewels. The prostitute is things like the arts and culture that are produced from such a great city and that bring beauty to the world. It's the industry and production of goods that seems to make life so much better for everyone who consumes them. And in John's day, all of this is coming from Rome, which is the center of the empire. But we see indicators in the passage that the influence of this prostitute isn't limited to just Rome. So, for example, in verse one, she's introduced And it says that she's seated on many waters. Now, the city of Rome was not seated on many waters. Rome is known as the city of the seven hills, which we actually see referenced in verse nine in connection with this beast. But even though Rome wasn't seated on many waters, ancient Babylon, another ancient center of empire, was. It was right along the Euphrates River, and they had canals coming off from the river that filled the city. And so it's referred to even in the Bible as seated on many waters. So the prostitute goes with Rome, but she also goes with Babylon. So she's not limited to one place or one period of time or one empire. And then in verse three, we see that she's riding on a beast. And this beast is actually the first beast that we saw in Revelation 13 a couple of weeks ago. It's the government systems of the world that oppose God and his people throughout history. So if the prostitute goes with the beast, we should expect anywhere the beast is, anywhere there's empire that opposes God or political power that opposes God throughout history, the prostitute will be there too. So she's not just for the ancient world. She's not just for some time off in the future. She's for our world today. And why does John describe her as a prostitute? Well, for several reasons. First, she contrasts the people of God. The closing chapters of revelation have been described by many people as a tale of two cities. So these chapters from here to the end of the book, they contrast the fate of Babylon or Rome symbolic for all the greatest the world can create. But as we'll see, it's in service of Satan. They contrast that with the new Jerusalem, the true people of God. And on one level, these two cities look so similar. Like both of them are shown as woman, beautiful woman, Both of them have beautiful jewels and gold and pearls. Both of them wear linen. They look so similar, and yet they couldn't be more different. The New Jerusalem is described as a bride prepared and adorned for her husband. And Babylon is just the opposite. It's a prostitute. And here's what that means. If the purpose of the church, the people who will make up this New Jerusalem, if our purpose is to be the people of God, If our purpose is to prepare one another for the day when we stand before God face to face and enjoy his presence forever, the job of the prostitute is exactly the opposite. The prostitute tries to use her beauty and her promises and her allure to draw us away from God, to get us to fix our eyes on her instead of Jesus. If you think about the image of of marriage versus a prostitute, in a marriage, both sides give themselves completely to one another, all of me, for all of you, forever. And the prostitute can only offer a cheap substitute. It's not giving, it's a transaction. You get part of the benefits of marriage for a time, but it always comes at a price. And the price is our lives, our eternal souls. And, being, and so being able to stay fixed on Jesus rather than be drawn into the traps of this prostitute is a matter of life and death for Christians. That's why John shows us she's a violent prostitute, so that we will be repulsed by her, so we won't want to walk into her traps and believe her lies. So that's the first reason. The second reason she's called a prostitute is that Anytime we turn away from proper worship of the true God, it leads to sexual immorality. This was definitely true in the ancient world. Like in the ancient world, pretty much every society had some gods they worship that were fertility gods. So the belief is basically if the fertility gods are happy with you, they send rain so your crops will grow. They make your sheeps and cows have lots of babies so you can be really wealthy. And remember, it was an agrarian society, so everyone wanted lots of crops. Everyone wanted lots of babies for your animals but how do you make a fertility god happy will you participate in fertility rites so you go to the god's temple you'd hire one of the god's priests who happens to also be a prostitute and you would have sex with them so this god will be happy with you and make you wealthy and come on eric we realize yeah that happened in the ancient world but we're way more advanced and sophisticated than that today we have science to show us how the world works we know that sleeping with a prostitute isn't going to make rain come and isn't going to make us wealthy And you know what? You're right. But look what's happened in our society. This scientific understanding of the world hasn't just helped us to see that sleeping with a prostitute won't make us wealthy. It's also explained away any need for God or any place for God, which means we've removed any understanding of humanity that sees us as more than just physical beings, products of random chance. We've lost any type of belief that we're made in the image of God. And if all we are is physical creatures, products of chance, and sex is just a physical desire, then why should we restrict it? We shouldn't, we should actually celebrate it and promote it in any form, any context, it doesn't matter. And so no, our God rejecting culture doesn't sleep with prostitutes to get wealth, but we promote and celebrate every type of sexual deviation our depraved human minds can imagine. Anytime a society or an individual turns from proper worship of the true God, it leads to sexual immorality. And so John paints the world system as a prostitute in order to force us to face this fact. And then the third reason John shows her as a prostitute is that the world system is attractive but deadly. Look at the description of this woman in verse 4 she's arrayed in purple and scarlet that's really fancy expensive clothes think like the ancient world's equivalent of a custom tailored gucci suit she's wearing gold and jewels and pearls this varied assortment from tiffany's and cartier she's wealthy she's stylish she's holding a golden cup in her hand and surely you only put the finest of drinks in such an expensive cup right I mean, if if back in your single days, if someone so stylish and so wealthy and so inviting was flirting with you and offering you a sip of their drink, wouldn't you be inclined to try a sip to experience the high life? And yet despite all the beauty and all the glamor, her cup holds nothing but filth. One commentator actually argues that abominations and impurities is too mild of translation for us to really get a feel of how terrible what's in this cup is. And he said, if we really wanna understand how terrible it is, picture the cup being filled with urine and dung and blood. Her fancy goblet is full of filth, but it's not just that, there's also blood on her hands. We see in verse six that she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This woman is attractive, but deadly. She uses her charm to try and draw us away from God. But if we follow her, all she can offer us is death. But if we refuse her, if we choose to remain faithful to God, she'll also pursue our death and get drunk off our blood. The prostitute, she's attractive, but deadly. And so that's who the prostitute is in the passage. But what does this have to do with our world today? Why does she matter for us today? Well, like I said, remember, the prostitute is operating all throughout world history. She was embodied at the time Revelation was written in the city of Rome, but she takes on a new form and new methods of seduction in every age, in every nation. And she is so dangerous. And if you're thinking at this point, like, come on, Eric, I've I've never been tempted by a prostitute. I'm pretty sure I can resist her. Remember, this woman is not what you expect. This is a high-end escort, someone trained in the art of seduction, the type of woman whose clientele include millionaires and politicians, people who could have their choice of woman, but they all flock to her because she's that attractive and that good. She knows how to find exactly what her clients or potential clients want. She knows how to entice them into her arms. She knows how to weave them into her web of death. And if you don't believe me that she's that good, look at John's response to her in verse 6. When I saw her, I marveled greatly." Now this word marveled, it means it literally means to be astonished by, and it can be in a positive or a negative sense. Positively, we'd translate it something like I was impressed by her. Negatively, we'd say something like I was disturbed by her. And it can be translated either way, but it's most likely that John's marveling is him being impressed by her. And I say that for two reasons. First, in verse seven, the angel is asking John, why do you marvel? If you think about this picture, a prostitute who's drunk on the blood of Christians and holding a golden cup full of filth, that's a disturbing image. If John is disturbed by this picture, there's no reason for the angel's question. The angel's question only makes sense if John's marveling is him being impressed by her. And then second, in verse eight, we see that the non-Christian world marvels at the beast that she's riding on the fact that the same word is used so closely together here points to a kind of parallel parallelism and we know from the other passages about this beast in revelation that the world marveling at this beast is is something almost like worship and so john's initial response to this woman matches the unbelieving world's response to the beast something almost like worship now how could john be tricked like this To believe that someone so vile and evil could be good and attractive and desirable. Well, like we said, at first glance, she looks a lot like the people of God. Both of them are beautiful women. Both of them have clothes made from the same material. Both of them are adorned with precious jewels. It's just like counterfeit money. The best fake is the one that looks the most like the original. If you don't look closely, you're going to miss the finer details and you're gonna pass the counterfeit off for the real thing. And remember, the person being deceived here is John, most likely the apostle John. Now think about some details about John. John spent three years of his life following Jesus around and living with him every single day. At the last supper, the night before Jesus died, John rested his head against Jesus' chest. As Jesus was dying, John stood by the cross Watching Jesus die, and on Easter morning, he was the first of the 12 disciples to arrive at the empty tomb. John wrote five books of the New Testament, and just 13 chapters earlier in Revelation, he saw a glimpse of God's throne room with every creative being in the entire universe joining in worshiping God and the Lamb. This John is deceived by the beauty of the prostitute. Now, if John can be deceived so easily, How much easier do you think it is for you and I to be deceived? It's so easy. If someone so strong in his faith can be captured by this lie, you and I have no chance of escaping it apart from the grace of God. And what does it look like for us to be drawn in by this prostitute? Let me warn you, it's not going to look evil on the outside most of the time. This prostitute, she's allied with Satan, who's the great deceiver. She won't be so blatant and try to seduce us with things that we know are terrible, like orgies and crystal meth. No, it's going to be far subtler things. Hey, here's a great opportunity at work, a chance to prove myself as a valuable employee, set myself up for great career advancement. But it's going to mean I don't have so much time to spend with my church community because I now have to spend so much time at the office. I mean, this prostitute, she's good. She'll even convince us to serve her under the pretense of serving God and being a good Christian. Hey, God wants us to love people and be kind to them, doesn't he? So why would you believe that that two people can't get married to each other, even if they're the same gender? Isn't that the opposite of how God wants us to treat people? She's really good. She's really deceptive. You know, there was once a pastor in the States and this pastor was asked, what would your city look like? if Satan had full power and control there. And I think his answer to that question does such a good job capturing the essence of how the prostitute draws us in, making everything look good, but hiding death in the process. This pastor said, if Satan took over the city where I pastor, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no man. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Doesn't that sound so much like what John experiences here? Something that looks like this godly ideal, no more drunkenness or porn, friendly and respectful neighbors. Everyone's going to church every week. And yet, just like the beautiful prostitute, the whole thing is this shiny veneer hiding us from being able to see death under the surface. The prostitute promises the world and more, but it all comes at a price and the price is our eternal souls. The price is that she'll give us everything we desire here and now, if only we'll reject Jesus and join her in her feast of death. And there are so many things that make her dangerous. Like most of the things that she offers us are really good things like comfort and wealth and luxury and prestige. If you look later in the book of Revelation, All of these things are promised to us by God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's part of what makes it so easy to be drawn in. The point isn't that these things are bad, but that her ways of getting them are deceptive and destructive. It's a trap. And if we step into her trap, we become like an animal snared in the woods, just held in place until the hunter comes along to kill it. To get the thing the prostitute promises from her hand, we must abandon our allegiance to God and transfer it to her master, Satan, the dragon. Also remember, both the church and the prostitute operate simultaneously in the world today, but Rome or Babylon or the prostitute is way up in your face. Again and again throughout Revelation, the the city of Rome or the prostitute or Babylon is described as great. It has power and influence. You can't escape constant exposure to it and constant exposure to the stories it tells you about what is the good life. Meanwhile, the church, it just seems small and insignificant. Throughout the book of Revelation, the church is beat up and conquered by the prostitute and her friends. Being faithful to Jesus means rejecting the call to be at home in this world and to find all the comforts that the prostitute offers us here and now. In a very real sense, staying faithful to Jesus leaves us homeless. It's an uncomfortable situation to be in because her allure and her promises are so powerful. And that's why God warns us about her because he wants to protect us from her. He wants us to remain faithful to him no matter what lies she feeds us. And this is hard because she is so attractive. She's so alluring. She's so desirable. And so in order to be faithful to God, we need to continuously hold on to a proper perspective of the world. This woman promising you the world is not the girl of your dreams. She's a violent prostitute who wants to drag you into her pit of death. And so to help us hold on to this perspective, God also gives us a glimpse into the prostitute's end. And the end that awaits the prostitute is that just as she has promoted and perpetuated violence in the world, she herself will be violently thrown down in the end. And in line with the rest of Revelation, she'll be thrown down by Jesus so that God wins in the end. But in a shocking turn of events, Jesus is going to use her very own friends and allies to defeat her. Now, where do I get this? Well, look how the prostitute comes on the scene in verse three. She's riding on a scarlet beast. We've already mentioned this beast is the first beast from Revelation chapter 13, the government systems of the world who oppose God and his people throughout history. And the woman and the beast, they come onto the scene together. They share a common enemy, God and his people. They have a common master, the dragon or Satan. They are allied together and they mutually support one another. The woman rides on the beast. The alluring economic and industrial and cultural system that tries to pull us away from God, cannot exist in the world unless it has a stable government system in place to uphold it. Without peace in the land and political stability, there's not going to be any type of economic or cultural prosperity. And so the woman won't be able to promise us designer goods and great jewels. She's going to be shown for the fake that she really is. I mean, if you think about it, someone walking down the street, if you see a prostitute who's hunched over on the side of the street, wearing torn clothes and missing teeth and smelling nasty, no one's going to be deceived into believing that prostitute can give them what they really want in life. For the prostitute to maintain her allure, to continue being able to trick us into thinking that she can really give us the good life, she needs her designer clothes and her jewels and her perfumes. She needs economic prosperity. And in order to have The stability for that. She needs a powerful government system in place to make that work. But at the same time, the beast uses the woman. I mean, the beast is impressive in and of of himself so that the whole world is impressed by him. We see that in verse eight in chapter 13. And we saw a few weeks ago and here, the beast tries to look like Jesus going through this mock resurrection, capturing the hearts and minds of the unbelieving world in the process. And yet when the woman and the beast ride onto the scene in verse three, the woman is so prominent and so attractive that you don't even notice the beast. Do you notice in verse six, the beast and the woman are both there right in front of John, staring him in the face, but John marvels at her, not them, but her. He's so captivated by her beauty that he doesn't realize he's, she's riding on something that he already knows is an enemy of God. He's so drawn in by her that he doesn't notice the blasphemous names on the beast's forehead that are just staring him in the face. The woman captivates us and, and captures all our attention so that the beast can just keep operating in the background without drawing attention. I mean, How often has this happened in world history where governments step in and demand more and more power over their people and the people are happy to give it as long as they experience more and more affluence in the process. Think about somewhere like Singapore, where people are happy for the government to put limits on their freedom of speech, limits on their freedom of the press, as long as the city keeps prospering financially. Governments of the world who want us to give our full allegiance to them rather than God, they're more than happy to use this prostitute of economic prosperity and cultural affluence as a smokescreen and a distraction so they can keep doing their thing without us noticing or caring the beast and the prostitute are allies and friends. And yet in this shocking turn of events, Jesus victory over the prostitute is accomplished through the beast and his allies attacking her. Look at verse 16, the 10 horns that you saw, which are actually part of the beast. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, if the beast and the prostitute are allies and friends, why would the beast suddenly turn on and attack and kill the prostitute? Well, from a human perspective, we see hints of this anytime governments step in to break up monopolies. Like why do governments break up monopolies? To create competition so that things can be better for the consumers? I mean, that's what they tell us, maybe that's part of it. But did you ever notice that no government ever has a problem with the lack of competition? when it comes to state-owned monopolies? No, the real reason the government is so opposed to monopolies is power. A privately owned monopoly providing a good or service the people rely on can hold the nation hostage. They can jack up prices to unreasonable levels. They can make crazy demands on the people and the government and you have no choice but to do what they say because you have no other way to get the thing they sell. And a private company that can hold the nation hostage is a threat to the government's hold on power. The beast would rather destroy the prostitute and lose an ally than have her put a bit in his mouth so he's subject to her control. Beastly governments think we can recover from the economic loss that the prostitute's death brings, but we can't recover if she takes over our throne. And so they destroy the prostitute to their own demise. But the real reason the beast and his allies attack the prostitute runs far deeper than this. And the deeper reason is told to us in verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Did you hear that? God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose until the words of God are fulfilled. The real reason the beast and his friends attack and kill the prostitute is that God's in control. God has programmed the world to work in such a way that those who oppose him bring about their own downfall systems set up to oppose God, self-destruct from the inside out. And this happens because no matter how it appears in the moment, no matter how much power the beast seems to have, no matter how great the prostitute seems to be, the deeper reality that revelation constantly reminds us of is that God is the only one on the throne. Jesus is victorious over the beast and the prostitute because despite the beast's claims otherwise, Jesus is the only Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Did you know that title that's used for Jesus in verse 14, Lord of Lords and King of Kings in the Roman world, they actually use that title to refer to Caesar. So giving these titles to Jesus, it's the type of thing that could get someone in serious trouble in the Roman world. Think about how much trouble John could have gotten in for writing this in his letter. Think about how much trouble these churches could have gotten in for possessing a copy of this letter because it's saying there's another king who rules over Caesar. Like, I mean, think about it. Christianity teaches Christians to obey the governments of the world. And yet despite the command to obey the governments in power, pretty much every government in history has been super uncomfortable by Christians and felt threatened by Christianity. Why would governments throughout history, throughout the world, throughout time, feel so threatened by a religion that teaches its followers to obey the government? This is why. It's because Christians believe Jesus is the true kings of, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if Jesus is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, You can never give your full, complete, unquestioned allegiance to any ruler or any government system in this world, and that terrifies the rulers of this world. But it's also what equips us as Christians to be overcomers, to be conquerors, because we serve the true king who is already conquered. We don't need to fear the empty threats and promises of beast and the prostitute. We don't need to be drawn into their empty and hollow promises because everything they promise us and more is already ours in Jesus. And it will be given to us in abundance one day. And you know, the awesome news of all this, that blessing, that abundance doesn't come to us because we're so great and prove ourselves so worthy by perfectly resisting this beast and the prostitute. No, look what verse 14 says of Christians. It says, Christians are called and chosen and faithful. If you are a Christian, well, first, if you're not a Christian, there's an invitation to you today to become a Christian, to trust in Jesus as the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But if you are a Christian, you are called and chosen. Like if you look back at verse eight, eight, it talks about the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world who marvel to see the beast. It's saying the people on the earth who don't trust in Jesus, who are so impressed by the beast, didn't have their names written in God's book of life from the foundation of the world. But you know, the implied contrast there, the implied contrast is that there are a bunch of people, everyone who ever has trusted in Jesus and everyone who ever will trust in Jesus, whose names are written in that book. Like if you are a Christian or if you will someday become a Christian in the future, It's not because you're so great and awesome and amazing and worthy of God's love. It's because before God made the world, he looked on you in love and chose to rescue you and wrote your name in his book. As we live in this world of uncertainty and and opposition we have such great security. How much more secure than you be, can you be than having your name written in God's book from before the world was made? Man, how much does that equip us to endure, to stay faithful to Jesus despite any opposition we face? And did you notice the third thing that verse 14 says about Christians? It says we're faithful. I don't know about you, but I feel like far too often that's not true of me. Like I listen to the empty promises of, of this world, of the prostitute and seek life in all the wrong places. I give in to the power of the beast and believe that true life comes from following the beast rather than Jesus. So how can God look at me and all my failure and call me faithful? Well, it's because when God looks at me, he doesn't see the track record of my failure. He sees Jesus perfection in my place. And therefore, despite my failure, i it's true of me right now that I am faithful. Church, the, the forces of this world that oppose Jesus, they use power and wealth and threats to try and draw us in and trap us in their lives. They promise us the good life if we'll just follow them. And if we refuse, they threaten our lives. But the true King of kings and Lord of lords, he lays down his life in our place instead. So why should we worship Jesus rather than the beast and the prostitute? It's because he's better. It's because he loves us. It's because he's proven his love for us by giving himself for us. And the more deeply that truth grips and transforms our hearts, the more we're going to see the promises of the prostitute for what they really are empty lies that only lead to death that we don't need to listen to church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for speaking to us from it, for showing us who you are, how your enemies work, who they are so that we can resist them, God. I pray that you would help us to stand firm for you this week, to be overcomers, people who stay faithful to Jesus no matter what we face. I pray that our hope would be fixed on you, not the things of this world. Help us to love you and love one another. Help us to be people who have peace, and security no matter what's happening in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I mentioned, if you have questions, uh, send them through Zoom chat to Les. We'll give you a few seconds to type out your questions, and then in maybe 30 seconds, Les can take over and begin
0: the discussion.
2: Thank you, Eric, for that. We're preaching God's word this morning for such a wonderful message. Um, if anybody has questions, um, don't hesitate. Feel free to type them. I've got a few more seconds. No questions is, is good, but sometimes it's <laughs> not good. But, um, uh, we've got one question here. So, uh, Eric, um, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So the first question is, um, the sermon mentions that the beast and the woman is riding on it, uh, uh sorry, the sermon mentions that the beast, the woman is riding on is the first beast from revelation 13, where do you get that? Where do you get that it's the same beast and how does the second beast from Revelation 13 fit in with the prostitute and the first beast?
1: Yeah. So thanks. So in Revelation chapters 12 and 13, which we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 12, we're introduced to a dragon who is Satan, who is oppressing the people of God and um, trying to stop Jesus from doing what he's going to do. And then in chapter 13, he has these two assistants who come in, the first beast and the second beast. Uh, And if you look at the description of the beast in chapter 17, it says that he has uh, seven heads, 10 horns, blasphemous names on his head. And it refers to him as the beast who was and is not and is about to rise. Um, And so the was and is not and is about to rise sounds like some sort of a a mock resurrection, sort of trying to, to imitate Jesus. And if you look at the first beast in chapter 13, uh, we see all of these same descriptions. In verse 1, we see 10 horns and 7 heads, just like and blasphemous names on its heads, just like the beast in chapter 17. And then uh, in verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So again, we have this mock resurrection, and we have the earth marveling at this beast uh, in response to that. And so, based on those parallels, it definitely seems like the beast in chapter 17 is this first beast in chapter 13. And what we saw in chapters 12 and 13 is that the dragon and the two beasts form a sort of unholy trinity. So, the dragon is Satan. The first beast is, we said, government systems of the world that oppose God and try and get us to worship them instead, which actually means worshiping Satan instead. And then the second beast is sort of this false prophet picture. Basically, the, the things in society that point our attention back to the first beast so that we'll worship that. So it could be things like the media that try and use fear to get us to put more control in the hands of the government. It could be things like the education system that, that teach us that the world just happened by chance. There is no God so that we don't worship God. And instead, again, place more of our hope on the government to be our savior. And so the dragon and the two beasts are sort of this unholy trinity, a mockery of the true trinity. Um, And then this prostitute sort of runs parallel to the church's role. And so the prostitute, just as the church worships God, tries to show other people how great God's way of living is and share the good news about God, the prostitute does the same thing for this unholy trinity the prostitute comes in and tries to get people to focus their attention on the unholy trinity and shows them how beautiful life can be if you're living under the leadership of this unholy trinity, so that we'll be drawn in the wrong direction, the opposite direction from what the church is supposed to be pointing us towards.
2: Great, thank you. Um, One more question. In a practical sense, how would we actually know or identify beasts and the prostitutes in our real life?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So again, like I said, the things that the prostitute promises us is, is typically good things. Um, but the it's often about the way that she tells us to get those things. So obviously in chapter 17, we see that sexual immorality is a huge part of what she does, um, that there's blasphemy involved. So there's some sort of rejection of Jesus involved in that process. Um, so if, you know, if there's something good, um, but to get that good thing, it's going to require us to compromise on God's standards of how he calls us to live sexually. That's a big red warning flag that the prostitutes at work, if there's something potentially good, um, but to get that thing, it's going to require us to deny Jesus or turn away from him. Huge red warning flag that the prostitutes at work, uh, also in chapter 18, we see in verses 11 through 13, this list of things that were traded in Babylon, which is equated with the prostitute. And at the end of the list, it talks about slaves, that is human souls. And so I think the other big thing that's a red warning flag with the prostitute is if she offers us good things, but in order to get them, we have to oppress others. Um, and you know that could be really big and obvious and blatant like owning slaves. Uh, But it could also be subtler ways, like if you're at work, just constantly, constantly having your people on call through the middle of the night, through the weekend, through holidays, never giving people a break and just oppressing them through the way that you work them so hard. Um, It could be things, you know, like if you're a parent, it's good to want your kids to be successful in school. It's not good to have your kids doing 80 to hundred hours a week of school and tutoring and homework and everything else to try and boost their resume. Um, so yeah, I think those probably are three good starting places to look for um, in terms of, is it a good thing that's, that's calling me to participate in sexual immorality? Is it a good thing that's calling me to deny Jesus? Is it a good thing, but it's calling me to oppress others? Like those are a solid starting place of warning flags to see that maybe this good thing, this thing that appears good is actually coming from the prostitute and not really from God.
2: Thank you. Um, Building on what um, you were just describing there, uh, one of the other questions uh, is, are false prophets another form of a prostitute?
1: Um, so, I think looking through the book of Revelation, the false prophet would probably be more aligned with the second beast of chapter 13. Um, false prophets would be basically people who teach us wrong things about God, and by doing that, draw our attention away from God. Um, and I think they're do, like, I would see the distinction between a false prophet, slash the second beast, and the prostitute as being. The false prophet is trying to to tell us things directly, um, to use logic or reason or some level of emotion um, to try and point us towards the dragon and the first beast. Where the prostitute is is really like modeling and inviting us into a way of life. Um, she's just saying like, "Look at my luxury. Look at my wealth. Look at how f- how much fun I'm having. Don't you want to have that too?" um, where the false prophets would come in and say, like, how can you really believe this? Don't you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, therefore turn away from God.
2: Great. Um, thank you, Eric, for clarifying all those things for us. Um, that's all the questions we have this morning. All right. Um,